Welcome back to the Line to Gain podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Dixon, along with Mike Parker. Mike, how's it going, man? Hey, hey, doing pretty good. I'm excited for this one. I'm excited. We're uh, we're getting into a, to my wheelhouse for sure. I know I, you're you're, uh, you're a couple years older than me, so you remember the '80s a little better than I do. But we're we're talking uh, 1990s NFL today. I truly am a child of the '90s, '90s hip hop and uh, '90s football. It's kind yeah. of where you know my my 16 year old self still remembers those things yep yep no i'm I'm with you man i am with you 100 percent. so yeah we're gonna uh we're gonna dive into the 90s and figure out who our dynasty of the decade is and uh we'll, we'll get to the get to the uh categories here as soon as we get take care of some business so yeah, um, yeah, some stack guy stuff today. Yep, yeah, got some stack guy stuff here not a lot um so i know mike before we get to this first one okay I know I, I texted you a few days after we did our USFL podcast. It's a shame. And was like, what Mike, how in the hell did we miss that the USFL is coming back in 2022? April of 2022. Uh, they're scheduling to play a 10-game season. They have eight teams. And uh, I guess they're all the games are in some Birmingham Birmingham, stands. Alabama, yeah, yeah. Because of COVID. But okay. yeah, the, the USFL is back. <laughs> Yeah, and so I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, the, the league is a single entity owned by Fox Sports, so there's no franchises at this point. Right. I don't know what their plans are in the future to, to maybe branch out and, and have uh, you know in in city owners of each of these teams. But um, you know that that'll be an interesting road to cross as if we get go down that. I hope I know, they. Uh, I know Fox televises a lot of the uh, WWE too, so I would hate. Well, to this is Fox Sports, so it's not exactly the same thing, right? As like what you would see on a on Fox thirteen or yeah. whatever your Fox affiliate is. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, being having it owned by a single entity um, makes a lot of sense in a lot of way. You have one person that ha- makes the money and pays the you know p- pays people. You don't have to worry about franchises operating differently and operating in the red and putting the the league at risk so for that it's a good idea um i'm not sure how you know they create um well parity should be pretty easy but how does a team excel like what is the the owner of the league do when you have you know chicanery going on between the the teams like what like who is the gen is there like is it operated like different divisions of a company where each one has like a department head or something like that. And that's the GM or president of a particular team. I wonder how that all works. Right. Right. Yeah. I wonder too. And if there's like beef in between teams, like how does that get, res- I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they, how they approach it. But. Well, well, some of the stuff that they actually took care of and thought of is they secured the rights from uh, to the USFL name and the team names, the logos and likeness. Uh, they are not in no way associated with the previous iteration of the league. So they don't have any aspirations to move the fall. Um, this will be a strictly spring and summer league. Yeah, and like we said, they'll play a 10-game uh, season, six interdivision games, and four out-of-division games with two playoff rounds. And uh, there's two divisions. The North Division has the Michigan Panthers, the New Jersey Generals, Philadelphia Stars, Pittsburgh Maulers. And then the South Division has the Birmingham Stallions, Houston Gamblers, New Orleans Breakers, and Tampa Bay Bandits. So it's kind of cool. They kept all the original names from 
um, yeah. from the teams that, or at least from part of the teams that were in the league originally. Cause I think the Pittsburgh Maulers out of that list were the only ones that, that weren't a part of the inaugural season uh, okay. for the USFL in 1983. Right, they came in in, the in, in, in 84, right? 84, right, yeah. okay. Yeah, this will be fun. I mean, I think their little niche here is that they're really designed for those younger players that um, can't go into the NFL. So kind of like what we saw with um, Herschel Walker in the original USFL, being uh, not being able to go into the pros um, until uh, nine, until 1984 uh, because he was he didn't do four years in college, so he circumvented that rule by going to the USFL. That might be an option for some younger players that don't want to enter into the the transfer portal or anything like that. Yeah, did Stack Guy find that out if they're gonna let? younger players uh play in the in this usfl yes they are okay good good nice so i like it yeah and and speaking of the usfl we had some questions about the dimensions of the of the football like it was like i think we said it was like three-eighths inch shorter or something like that so to clarify that um the usfl now then uh pretty much use utilizes the same size ball as the nfl does same size same dimensions and everything um, it, essentially, the NCA ball, um, which ha- looks a little bit different with the two white stripes on the on the ends, um, and its range of a margin range for sizes and weight and stuff is a little bit broader than what you'd find in the NFL. So that's ultimately when it was. So NFL has very strict margins for how much the ball can be inflated or deflated, and how much mm-hmm. weight it can have and now we know that from the deflate gate scandal and how it was like one eighth uh of a you know ounce too heavy or (laughs) it was over inflated or whatever the case was but that's really what it comes down to when we talk about ball dimensions within these these leagues right right now that's uh that's interesting because you know you don't really think about you think of a football as a football as a football but yeah and they there are different um you know i I coached uh youth football for a few years and there's like you know the junior football is this size and then the well once the kids move to like seventh and eighth grade it's the bigger one and then obviously in high school it's it's bigger and and uh so on and so forth so yeah it's uh it's yeah, interesting to know. I always felt it was a little bit easier for me to throw a college ball. Um, I could squeeze it a little bit better, um, and that allowed a little bit more control for me, less slipping out of my hand and stuff like that. Um, pro balls um, definitely like like rocks almost. Yeah. Um, I've had a picked up a couple of K balls and tried to throw those around, and they are just stiff and. <laughs> like leathery and man you really have to work those in i mean they put the balls in like dryers and things like that to get them weathered take them put them in a big bag and just bang them on the yeah the quarterbacks or the quarterback coaches or somebody like just smash the equipment manager most likely yeah but yeah smash them against the ground anything you can to just get it worn in so it's comfortable yeah no doubt well, yeah, I know uh, Stack Guy did uh, do some research on uh, a couple of questions we had. Also, Steve Young, uh, USFL contract breakdown. So we, we talked about how he had an annuity. His mom let everybody know that he had an annuity. I had said I didn't want to do this, yeah. right? And here, like, I, I go home and Stack Guy's like, come on, dude, we have to do this. So this is this, this is what we came up with. Yeah, take it away. Yeah, so he was, um, the actual contract was $40 million over 43 years. Um, you got six point two million in a signing bonus. This is Steve Young, by the way, um, and with another roughly thirty-two million uh, being paid out over uh, annually over 
1990 to 2027. So basically, almost immediately after signing this contract, the LA Express owner went broke. So right after he signs it, there's no real way that this contract was going to be satisfied. Um, Steve eventually sued for about $1.4 million in unpaid salary. And obviously, yeah, yeah, he collected that. He collected somewhere around $8 million for the two years that he was there. And um, I think pretty commiserate with you know, That's salaries bad. in the NFL. Than most, yeah, NFL um, rookies are getting. And then was picked up in the expansion draft, not expansion draft, but the supplemental draft um, for the USFL and CFL players. Um, went to the Bucks and eventually traded to the, the 49ers, as we all know. And the rest is history. So this set the precedent for some crazy annuity contracts. Yeah. So, Bobby Bonilla, you brought this up. What do we got? Yeah, so uh, the New York Mets wanted to buy out Bobby's contract that was worth $5.9 million for the 2001 season. Uh, The Mets owner had a significant holding uh, in investments being managed by Bernie Madoff. All right, pause right now. Yeah. All right, so they have $5.9 million they want to pay this guy. But some yokel who's running that team goes, I can put this $6 million and I can give it to Bernie Madoff and I can flip it. And make money more money off that than than it's worth paying Bobby Bonilla right now to get him out of contract, right? Right. right. Insane. <laughs> yeah. So he did that um, with the promise of double digit returns on the five point nine million owed to Bobby. Uh, the Mets agreed to pay him one point two million a year, plus eight percent interest starting July first, two thousand eleven, and continuing until July first, twenty thirty five. So clearly he thought this double-digit return, which is almost un- unheard of in the marketplace over time, right. um, would have been like, I don't know, watching Haley's Comet or something, having this investment work out. He decides to push out this annuity, you know, another, what, 10 years after the money was due even. That's that's yeah. insane. So, and it's 20, so he's basically signed a, paying him $1.2 million, million a year plus interest for 25 years. Which is just, yeah. But his thing is, I can take the six million double-digit return on that month over month or right. year over year. I'm going to make more money with taking that into investment and then right. promise him down the line. That was that was the hedge. Too funny, man. It's too funny. And my me and my buddy Primo text each other every July first to wish each other a happy Bobby Bonilla Day because that's what uh, what July first is affectionately known as. Uh, and because that's the day he receives his next payment every year. He'll be 72 when the annuity matures. Right. So. so first of all, this deal is crazy, right? I've never heard anything like it. This guy is still it's getting insane. paid a million, 1.2 million a year from this team. Uh, the Mets are paying, obviously, because they're solvent and it's a contract and, you know, just part of doing business, I suppose. But guess what? Bobby was able to facilitate this again with the Baltimore Orioles. This is yeah, crazy. This, to me. I didn't know this when you when you uh, when you brought this up. This is crazy. So the Baltimore Orioles are paying him five hundred thousand a year, um, starting um, uh, since two thousand four. It's a twenty five year annuity. So for for twenty five years from two thousand four, he's getting you know half a million a year from the Orioles. What? He's a genius, man. I mean, it's pretty crazy. That is nuts. I, I had no idea about that, and I can't wait to tell my friend Primo about it. Yeah. That well, is, tell him uh, this one too, because as Mariners Seattle Seattle sports fans, um, Ken Griffey Jr. got in on the action too. 
he receives $3.9 million per year through 2024 as a deferral for his nine-year $116 million contract that he signed in 2000 with the Cincinnati Reds. Okay, nice. Well, I'm glad he's not getting that from the Mariners, but thank goodness he's uh, getting it. I appreciate it. I love Ken Griffey Jr., man. That's my guy. So, yeah, Mike, well, that's uh, that wraps up our Stat Guy segment. So uh, let's get to the Dynasty by Decade rules. Let's do it. So you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points. Uh, to be the dynasty of the decade, you must win at least one championship or Super Bowl. Teams will earn points based on how far they made it in the playoffs. So one point for a playoff berth, two points for a conference loss, three points for a conference win, four for a Super Bowl loss, five for a Super Bowl win. The team that wins the Super Bowl any given year earns a total of nine points. So that's it. These, Pretty uh, simple. Yeah, that, that formula helps us determine who our dynasty of the decade is. All right. And so, the well, before we get to that, let's talk about the categories. Uh, first category we have is this just in. So um, start in 1990s. Um, this was the first time since 1966 the NFL adds a bye week, making the season 17 weeks long and helping all those injured players in, in so that's that's good. Good for them. Yeah, absolutely. And that must have been some bad football at the end of those seasons. Well, we know that the football season just in general is a is a you know, a war of attrition. The the healthiest team right. sometimes wins over the best team. Yeah, absolutely. They also added two more slots into the playoffs, increasing the teams to twelve. Uh, the thought behind this was four of the previous last five seasons. There was a team sitting at about ten and six that missed the playoffs. So they're like, Wow, we have a lot of great teams that deserve to get in. We're going to add a couple of spots and uh, they, they just continue to add them really. Right. Including, yeah, this past year. So we're going to definitely have some, uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, when you get teams that are uh, under 500 in the playoffs, it's, it, and they win a lot of times, like in those uh, first, cause it's usually a wild card team coming to a uh, division, a division. Um, yeah. They that, play a home game know, so they, in that first round, that wild card round. Yeah. Game. That's come back to bite them a few times. It happened so. with the uh, 2011 Seahawks. Went seven and nine. Um, got and the four the seed. Beat the Saints with the the Beastquake game. Right. And actually had a really close game against the the Chicago Bears. Yeah. In they that they, next they, round. they played them very well in that next round. I really thought like that we were going to host a home AFC uh, uh, NFC Championship game if we that beat those Bears. Wild, it was man. it was crazy. Fun times though. All right. So um, also, this marks the full season um, with the new NFL commissioner, Paul Tagliabue. He uh, goes out and renames the Super Bowl MVP trophy, the Pete Rozelle trophy. Um, for me, it's a little bit clunky of a name, but uh, Rozelle definitely deserves that. Is it still called that? I think so, okay. yeah. All right. We've talked about this in other podcasts, um, that the NFL was moving, trying to take the game to some international audiences so uh, most of these games were in um london's wembley stadium uh, but 1990 they started to play around with some other locations uh the tokyo dome in tokyo olympic stadium in montreal canada and the olympia stadium in west berlin so i was reading this i'm like west berlin i mean what <laughs> i mean what are we talking about here right. so uh germany wasn't unified until october 3rd 1990 which would have been uh, after that preseason game so uh pretty soon thereafter it just became berlin so there was no west and east clear you know after the wall came down in, in late 89 kind of led to that but they were still politically separate 
until right. August uh, October third. Interesting. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow, that's that is interesting. All right, so 1991. Um, there are a couple that I. Just to preface this, there are a lot of RIPs that we have in the next few episodes, uh, in part because we're starting to see we've we've given up a bunch of names throughout these last episodes, mm-hmm. and we're we're just revisiting some and of those yeah, experiences. We're, we're, I think in the in the nineties we hit the seventy fifth anniversary of the league, so yeah. it's all the original original guys are going out. Um, passing away so yeah go, go so we're ahead. not by nature like morbid or anything but i think right, this, just, there's some important names here that we need to talk absolutely, about so absolutely. in 1991 r.i.p paul brown uh we've talked about him um at length on our show uh pretty much an og um in uh the nfl um he died due to complications with pneumonia he was uh actually inducted into the hall of fame in 1967 so he took that um that coaching job with the expansion, Cincinnati Bengals and the AFL became the coach, the owner, all that kind of stuff. Um, he was just basically don't pass go, don't collect two hundred dollars, just right into the Hall of Fame, right? Um, so yeah, no, R.I.P. Paul yeah, Brown. R.I.P. Paul. Uh, you know, the, another thing that happened in 1991 was the NFL launched the World League of American Football that we all kind of I, I just vaguely remember it. I know. Um, you know, we, there's like some Seahawks players that won the, uh, won the like MVP of the world league. And I think, I'm not sure exactly what year it ran to, but it was sometime in the late nineties or early two thousands that they finally boarded that up and, and decided it wasn't going to work. But, um, it was kind of a cool idea to get, you know, try to globalize the game on some, uh, bigger level other than just having a preseason game here and there. Yeah. It's definitely more challenging than basketball to go international in a lot of ways. Um, you need a bigger field, you need a bunch of people. There are like rules that you need to apply, you know, when you're playing, when you're head to head with, uh, with another person on a basketball court, you get three of your buddies, you get five of your buddies, you know, you get any number of people and you just kind of get out on a small space and kind of hash it out. I think it's a little easier to port to different areas, but right. basketball is easier to learn because, yeah. you know, people, I think the, put the ball in the hoop is at ball. its basic, yeah. put the ball in the hoop. That's exactly. all you really need Soccer, to do. Soccer, basketball, are easy. that's why those are like Score. the biggest international games, right. I believe, because yeah, and I, I suggest anybody go out and there's a John Grisham book. Called, it's a pretty short one called uh, "Playing for Pizza," and it um, he basically used a guy that had played at the University of Washington as kind of the muse for his this mm-hmm. fictional book. Um, but there are all kinds of uh, little, small fo- uh, American football leagues in Europe that play in like you know on like dirt gravel fields that are you know just beat to hell, and these guys are just chasing their dreams for. You know, to try to continue playing professionally for years after college. So it was, it was really interesting. I had no idea they even had anything like that. So Yeah, interesting. Look it up if you yeah, want. Check it out. So 1992, this one um, is kind of just for me and, and Jeremy. Um, so the 1992 draft, the first pick was uh, Steve Entman, defensive tackle from the University of Washington. Um, one of the greatest defensive players that I've ever seen play in college. He was a member of the University of Washington's co-national championship team, destroyed the Heisman Trophy winner Desmond Howard um, in the Rose Bowl versus the Michigan Wolverines. So, If, if you watch uh, ESPN's college game day show, they're, they're uh, 
their morning show leading into the games. Uh, you can anytime the Washington Huskies comes up, come up, you can tell Desmond Howard is still real bitter. He's real <laughs> Good. salty. Good. I love it. I, you know, I I feed off of it. I love it. <laughs> so this brought me to the opportunity. Like I, I don't know if I'm over speaking for you, but I'm pretty sure we agree on this. Like the 1991 national championship UW team is the greatest college football team that either one of us have had the the joy to to witness yes, right absolutely so um i decided to we were co with the miami hurricanes and there was this what felt like an east coast bias in a lot of ways and i felt like we had a way better team than the miami hurricanes mm-hmm. and we ended up with co so i took the liberty of breaking down some of our uh, of the records so the u-dub is in the pack now pack 12 was the pack 10 back then and back then miami was in the big east so uh, we went 12-0, and 0, defeating three ranked opponents, number nine, Nebraska, number seven, Cal, and number four, Michigan. Miami went 12-0, and 0, defeating four ranked opponents, 10, Houston, nine, Penn State, one, Florida State. That was the first uh, wide right game that they won versus Florida State. And the number 11, Nebraska at the time, that was in, um, I believe, their Orange Bowl. So to, to little side note, Houston was ranked too high, basically. So there was a second game of the year. They came in ranked number uh, 10. Uh, they had gone 10 and 1 the previous year, uh, won the SWAC, and, but finished 4 and 7 in 1991. So that number 10 is not really a top 10 win at the end of the day. So, um, so that's their first metric I measured them against. So um, scoring, we the Husky scored 491 points and only had 115 points against. Now let's think about that. Let that number sink in. 149 points scored with only 115 against the entire Almost year. five to one. Crazy. Um, conversely, the Miami Hurricanes were 386 points scored versus 100 um, against. So... Right. Not quite as high as ours. Um, definitely, uh, they played some good defense, you know, holding teams to about 100 points. Um, we beat our teams by an average of 31 points. They beat their teams by an average of 24 points. So the Pac-10 finished the year with four top, uh, four top 25 teams. So they had four teams from the Pac-10 in the top 25 at the end of the year. So they had a tougher conference. There was nothing, there was no uh, top 25 team outside of Miami and the Big East, but they did play a ton of -of out-of-conference games. They they were essentially not afraid to take on anybody, including, you know, number one, Florida State. It's insane that they played 10 out-of-conference games. Yeah. So they basically weren't even affiliated. They were in the Big East, but not. So they came into the Big East partially as a part of that push into the Big East to uh, so you remember the Big East in basketball right. it, they basically were like Providence and all these other teams and Georgetown yeah and teams that didn't have a uh, football programs right and it really started to fall apart when the conference wanted to start pulling in these big power uh, football teams Pitt and Boston College and they were looking at Miami and they brought them in to create a, a power conference for football now that Big East has gone back to what do they call them the eight bishops or whatever it is, yes. um, but um, yeah, back then it was kind of a weak, weak um, conference. So, okay. all right. So 
We, uh, our opponents went 70, 62 and one, and their opponents went 75, 63 and three. So we roughly played the same level of teams throughout the year. So, um, one of the things that we did do is we both, we played two like opponents. We both played Arizona and we both played Nebraska. Washington scored 90 points against these opponents with an average margin of victory of 34 and a half points. Miami scored 58 points against, um, these opponents with an average margin of victory of 24 and a half. Now, the conclusion is like, who, who's the better team to me, the numbers skew Washington heavy numbers don't lie. And then on top of that, uh, you can look at what the starting teams were and there's definitely more NFL drafted NFL quality players on the Washington team than there were on that particular Miami team. Yeah. And also Gino Toretta kind of looks like a guy. He was at the the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> and I'm like, that's Gino Toretta? Yeah. <laughs> was he selling insurance? Yeah, no doubt, man. He doesn't I think he might call like Division Two football game or FBS games for for uh ESPN or Maybe. something like that now. But yeah, so that's my breakdown. What do you think? Like, what's yeah, your where are you I, at with yeah, that? Yeah, I'm obviously, man. I'm biased, but I I'm definitely taking Washington in that in that breakdown. Uh, you know, just looking at the numbers, it's. And I remember watching that game. That was like that's like the first. I mean, my grandfather had season tickets for the Huskies. Um, I mean, I remember going and watching Napoleon Kaufman play in guy. Husky Stadium and all these just you know Bean O'Brien and just the you know Steve Edmond all these guys like they were monsters man and they were so it it was deafening in there you couldn't you know these the the uh the opposing players didn't know what hit them most of the time so it was like you know we had such a crazy home field advantage but we took it on the road too you know defense travels and we had one of the best defenses I've ever seen in college football yeah I think Prior to that, and from most of my college football watching history after that, I didn't care if there was a playoff, but I really felt like these two teams would have played to just... I would have. Me and my brother was a... I, I don't know if I mentioned it. I know you know this, but I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast, my brother was a Miami Hurricanes fan, and we would just, like, fight each other because it's before the internet, so you're, like, trying to look in the... You had to wait till the Monday newspaper came out to see what the what the rankings were so we would like fight oh, my mom would hide the newspaper on monday mornings because we would just fight at the breakfast table over our cereal or whatever on yeah. who was the better team what is it take them to thunderdome right just the two teams walk into thunderdome one team yeah. leaves i would love it that would have been so great side note that seems like a good nickname for a, for a dome stadium yeah, somewhere man. why isn't that used yet yeah. yeah let us know if it is yeah. i'm not sure <laughs> All right, so there's our breakdown of the 1991 <laughs> college football uh, Go National Championships. Uh, so there you go. Um, also, um, bringing it down a little bit, 1992, um, Jerome Brown. Um, he passed away through complications of an automobile accident. He was 27. He was uh, one of the anchors to the famed uh, Philadelphia Eagles gangrene defense in the early 90s. He was alongside Reggie White, Clyde Simmons, Seth Joyner, Andre Waters, and Eric Allen. Um, one of my favorite teams um, ever. The, the, that that, that mid nineties defensive front was so amazing. Man. Yeah, it was so much fun to watch. 
you had uh, Randall Cunningham and just Keith Jackson. That's like that's really one of my favorite teams too of all yeah. time. Like I loved Randall Cunningham back in in those days. Um, so yeah. You know, our, our, the brief side note uh, from from a Seattle sports fan's perspective, uh, Jerome Brown was Cortez Kennedy changed his number from I believe ninety. It was was it ninety nine to ninety six. Ninety nine to ninety six after Jerome Brown passed and in honor of him because they played together at Miami and I think they grew up together possibly too. They were they were like the best of friends. So um, you know, just yeah, that was I always remember Jerome Brown just because of the you know, being yeah. a Seahawks fan and Cortez Kenny, I think that was the year he won yeah. the uh, uh, MVP on, on a last place team as well. So or defensive MVP on a last place team. Well R. I. P. Jerome Brown. It was fun. R. I. P. All right, nineteen ninety three, moving along. Um, the league played a 18-week schedule uh, to try and generate some more revenue and avoid uh, comp- uh, competing with the college football January 1st bowl schedule. They basically added another week so they could uh, get on the other side of that um, those New Year's Day bowl games. Now it doesn't seem like they really care, but um, yeah, wow. didn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um- you know, in, in Don Shula became the NFL's all-time winningest coach in 1993 as well when the Dolphins defeated the Eagles 19-14 to for Shula's 325th career win. Uh, his, ver- his first victory came when the Baltimore Colts defeated the San Francisco 49ers 20-14 to on September 22, 1963. So I mean, his 30-year career, and I'm not sure how much – he was there at least a few years after that, but um, – I mean, what a hell of a coach, you know, for to stick with it for that long, man. It's a, that's a, that job is a grind. Yeah, when you think about how long he coached and being able to adapt, you know, how he coached and and game plans and to start with, um, the the Baltimore Colts and end up with Johnny Unitas and end up with Marino and just two of the best I ever. Mean, we're talking over. 60 to 90 right so i mean 30 years of of 30 years plus yeah coach. no doubt um and then another um this i think this is one of the most important things i, I read this and i like this this is big uh, nfl modern free agency system was introduced in 1993 as well um this leads to kind of more parity in the nfl basically if you can pony up the money you can get some really star some really big star players quarterbacks defensive you know players uh, running backs um, whatever you need it's um, yeah I had no idea that I just always figured this happened maybe in the in the late 70s or early 80s I had no idea that the uh, that there wasn't normal free agency uh, you know that we know now uh, back back uh, in even in the early 90s so that's pretty you know pretty interesting to me uh, you know, and also in uh, there in 1993, Mike, uh, expansion teams were awarded to Carolina and Jacksonville to start play in 95. So I thought that was kind of a, um interesting, you know, little tidbit. Cause it was the first time they really had expanded in, in, a, in a number of years. So Yeah, quite some time, right. So, yeah. Yeah, and since, what, 1967? I think so, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's it. it, it to, no, 76 with the Buccaneers. Oh, that's and, uh, right, right, right. Um, Seahawks. This this calls back to our USFL um, episode as well because we talk about 
how um, that league in particular really made it the, the the audiences, the fans in places like Jacksonville and Orlando and Tampa and uh, Carolina really showed out for these teams. They proved to these these leagues that they could support teams. So that was it's really kind of the that is the fruit of that that previous labor right there, bringing yeah. those teams into the Sun Belt there. Absolutely. All right. So 1994, it looks like uh, CBS loses their rights to the broadcast the NFC games um, to the upstart, upstart Fox Network, ending its 37-year uh, association with the NFL. Womp, womp. <laughs> I do remember that being pretty crazy. And Fox was kind of, yeah, like Fox was such like the new new network and they were kind of like the hip young at Arsenio Hall and, you know, all this stuff. And so I, I and in living color and stuff. And so they were they seemed like the cool new new bro- broadcast network anyway. So it was yeah, I thought that was kind of cool that they started broadcasting games. Well, let's not be too sorry. Feels too sorry for CBS. They obviously came back yeah. and, you know, both of these broadcasts essentially just kind of skew to the mean anyway no one is any in particularly feels more youthful or exciting yeah, no, they're just exactly. just exactly. give me the football game yeah, some some little this is like 12 year old <laughs> yeah. jeremy though at that time so uh, um also in 1994 mike with a three touchdown performance in the opening game of the season the 49ers wide receiver jerry rice passes walter payton and jim brown to become the NFL's all-time leader in uh, touchdowns with 127. Uh, Walter Payton had 125, Jim Brown had 126, and he came in with 124 and then went out with the the record. That's crazy to to pass two all-time greats in the same game. I don't think I've ever heard of that happening in sports. You know, Steph Curry, uh, we're recording this the day after Steph Curry just broke – um, Ray right. Allen's all-time uh, three-point shooting record, which seems insane because I mean he, yeah, but he was ten. He was ten behind him going into a couple games ago, and and like made a like an offhanded comment like, "Well, maybe I'll go get fifteen tonight or something like that," and then struggled for three games because that's that can't be easy, man, with that pressure on you, knowing you're about to pass pass a legend or pat you know, and especially I mean Walter Payton and Jim Brown are a lot bigger names than uh ray allen so uh but that 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 pressure man's got to be yeah he said that he said that going into the portland game he had he needed 16 to to pass him and just maybe maybe i'll just get get it all and maybe no he said maybe i'll get all 16 here and and so obviously it didn't happen um he goes and gets pretty much shut down by uh matisse theibel uh shout out to the uw um out in Philly and um, just it took him a, a little bit longer but yeah. you know he got there obviously yeah, with you the know, Knicks. Nobody, and nobody wants to give that record uh, any big record like that that's gonna you know you don't want to be the guy that that gives the gives the record to anybody so well here comes the Knicks and it just can't defend anybody <laughs> anyway all right so um, the next thing we have for 1994 is it marks um, the NFL's 75th season um, and they had this whole like shirts and jersey uh, changes and all this other stuff. They introduced the throwback uniforms in that year. I love that's I love throwback uniforms. One of my favorite things. It's like it's so cool to have all these alternative uniforms yeah, and stuff like that. I'm too like old that. to wear jerseys anymore, but I, yeah. I I still man like the the 
20 year old in me still wants to I love the, the I'm not a 49ers fan in general, but I really like that particular year. I, I was sick and tired of watching the Dallas Cowboys win. Um, so I was really happy just to have somebody beat them. And they had the like the white pants with the stripes and the the um, the red jerseys, obviously, with the with the block lettering, with the black, you know, shadowing. Um, it just I just really looked that team was not Ricky Waters and Steve Young and uh, Deion Sanders. It was such a good, such a good team. Absolutely. That was awesome. All right. Um, Also, um, we had the birth of the NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, This is huge. Yeah. Like that's huge. It changed the game really. So the league ends up partnering with direct TV to offer this exclusive package that allows fans to see all of the games regardless of their regional location. I mean, this to be able to just flip between the games. I had this for two seasons, and it was great. Um, I think red zone for your your buck, your fan dollar, is probably a better way to go because there's a lot of dead games. Um, yeah. You know, like when the Bengals show up in Detroit in like mid-2000s, it's like, eh. But... Um, that red zone is probably if you really are trying to decide if you want to add, you know, something to your package, try that one. Yeah, but, yeah, red, but this red zone's was, a game changer too. But NFL Sunday ticket, I wanted this when I was a kid desperately, but we didn't have Directv, and my parents were like, "No, we're not." It's expensive. Not buying you a two hundred dollar freaking cable package, dummy. Go outside and play. I never understood why, and I guess they're just controlling content, but as I'm watching, like, why do I have to have this box? Why don't they partner with some online portal or, like, app and a TV? Like, why do I have to get DirecTV? Because DirecTV is the worst. They're the absolute worst. You can't get a hold of anybody. I, di- I digress. Let's not talk about DirecTV <laughs> on this, but they're really bad. So, yeah, that. Mike, uh, moving on to 1995, in February of 95, uh, just after the Super Bowl, they had the NFL expansion draft for the Jaguars and the Carolina Panthers. Uh, the first pick in that draft was Steve Berline of the Arizona Cardinals by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And the second pick was Carolina Panthers selecting cornerback Rod Smith from the New England Patriots. So... Just uh, you know, a little footnote on that. Thought those were uh, some some interesting, some important notes. Yeah, yeah, some important important moments in uh, league history. Uh, the also that year, Mike, the Dolphins uh, quarterback Dan Marino throws his 343rd career touchdown pass, breaking Fran Tarkenton's all-time record. Uh, it's one of four of Tarkenton's records Marino would break that season which also included attempts, completions, and yards. So, you know, a lot of a lot of these great 1980s quarterbacks are kind of finishing up their careers, doing their thing, uh, you know, setting records, and uh, it, was, it was beautiful to see. Um, also that year, the NFL teams collectively break the 100,000-yard mark in passing with 105,976. Uh, and 10,000 point barrier. The the teams all together scored 10,314. Uh, and that was the first time in league history. Uh, NFL records are also set for 1,000 yard receivers where there was 23 of them. 300 yard passing games, there was 80 of them. That's crazy. Uh, and 100 yard receiving games, there was 185. And a record 21 games went into overtime. So a lot of exciting football 
big scores, big, and you, you know, when we were doing our fantasy draft that we'll get to in a little bit here, uh, you could really see there was a few years in the middle of, of the decade that especially passing numbers just went through the freaking roof. Uh, wide receivers were the the top scorers a couple of those years or close to it. So, yeah, to your point, yeah, that's. I mean, we see when I, when we're looking into the draft, I saw several quarterbacks, for example, that were at the top of the pack that you wouldn't even think of in the 90s, like Jim Everett and Jeff yeah. George and several like these kind of what you would call Bledsoe, at least I wouldn't say middle tier for Bledsoe necessarily, but just kind of in the middle of the road as far as their overall career, just just throwing, you know, putting up amazing numbers, like not too far off from a Favre or a Warren Moon, for right. example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so moving on to 1997, Mike, I know... Uh, in 1994, we had the 75th anniversary of the league. Well, in 97, uh, the 10,000th regular season game in NFL history is played. Um, and I swear to God, I'm not just trying to pull facts that, that relate and let me talk about the Seahawks. But uh, the, the game was played between the Seahawks and the Tennessee Oilers, with the Seahawks winning 16-13 to at the Kingdome in Seattle. Uh, the game ball and jersey of winning quarterback Warren Moon were sent to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and that was on October 5th, 1997. And another quick uh, quick note from 97 that I thought was interesting is that rookie running back Corey Dillon of the Cincinnati Bengals and Washington Huskies uh, broke Jim Brown's single-game rushing record by a rookie with 246 yards in one game. He was a beast, for he sure, Corey Dillon. Yeah, so 1998, um, Peyton Manning was drafted from the University of Tennessee. He was the first pick in that draft, um, and he was the first in the next generation of NFL great quarterbacks. So he was kind of the one that starts that next lineage of quarterbacks that picked it up from Elway, Marino, and and such. And speaking of those guys, uh, per football outsiders, the 1990. 1990- 98 season was viewed as the last hurrah for the great quarterbacks drafted in the 80s. So we had uh, the top four quarterbacks were all over 35. Uh, number one was Vinny Testaverde. Two was Randall Cunningham. Three, Steve Young. And uh, five, uh, four was John Elway. Number five was number five was Troy Aikman. He was 32. And uh, number 11 was Dan Marino, his last productive season. So it was, in fact, that these guys came out through great numbers uh, for that 1998 season. And then a lot of them retired shortly thereafter. I remember that draft pretty, pretty well. And it was between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf from Washington State uh, University. And I just, I always thought Ryan Leaf was a clown, but he, I thought he had, was going to be the better player because he had like his physical tools seem more than Peyton Manning. I remember like reading draft, uh, you know, previews and things like that. And then a few people saying like, well, Peyton Manning, if his dad was an Archie Manning, that he wouldn't even like, he'd be like a third round pick, but uh, and I know Mel Kuyper, I'm pretty sure, like, that was something he, like, uh, from ESPN, like, he had to kind of fall on his sword because I think he was pretty adamant that uh, that Ryan Leaf was the better quarterback out of the, the two of those guys. Well, it just shows that the kind of the mental aspect of the game is, is uh, just as important as the physical aspect. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so in 1999, um, the NFL's all-time leading rusher, Walter Payton, 
uh, passed due to um, effects of a rare liver disease. The NFL Man of the Year Award was renamed Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, honoring uh, players who volunteer for charities and do humanitarian work within the NFL on a given season. So he was uh, he was one of the great ones, man. It, it's yeah, it's still it's a shame, and yeah, I know they don't know what caused the rare liver disease, which is unfortunate. So I was looking as you know as thinking of how some content for future things, and I looked at Walter Payton, and I think as a kid I thought he was the greatest running back of all time. Uh, you start looking at some numbers, and you know. Uh, per yard um, yards per carry type numbers and stuff. He's not up there, but um, if you look at his body of work over the time that he was there, um, I think he's third on all purpose yards on the list of all purpose yards. He's the top running back on that list. Um, You know, from what you said, he, you know, he had 125 touchdowns um, second, you know, to just behind Jim Brown um, in, in touchdowns. So I'm looking at all of these these things, and I go, he's got to be, man, at least in the top two, maybe three running backs of all time. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to try to figure out a way to really quantify that a little bit better, um, you know, when compared to uh, Jim Brown um, in a 12-game season and O.J. Simpson in a 14-game season. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Walter Payton's better than O.J. Simpson, hands down. But um, there are some other you know, people we have to take into consideration, but you know, I still have uh, a place in my heart for, for my first favorite player. You got to man. You got to RIP. Yeah. RIP Walter Payton. Uh, Also there in 1999, Mike Jason Elam kicked a 63 yard field goal, tying Tom Dempsey's 1970 NFL record. Obviously he's kicking it in Denver, Colorado, mile high city, all that stuff. Thinner air, et cetera. He, uh, he, they actually were going for a 58-yard. Um, he was going to try to kick a 58-yard field goal, and they got a false start. And it was the end of the half, and the coach was like, screw it, just go ahead and kick the field goal to see if you can do it. And he did it. So it was kind of a – you know, was, I remember seeing that pop up on, like, SportsCenter or something and be like, holy crap, man, I can't believe somebody booted a, you know, 63-yard field goal. It is a big thing. It's happened a couple of times. We just had it recently broke this year, right? Was it 65 by Tucker? Yeah, I believe so. 66. Don't quote me. I know Stack Guy will get us, so either All right. way. All right, anything else for the justice, this just in category? No, no. I think it's time to move on to the teams. Let's look at the teams. So starting the 1990 season, we have 28 teams, uh, two conferences. Uh, so in the American Football Conference, or AFC, uh, we have the East, Central, and West. Uh, so then the East Conference, uh, we have, or the East Division, rather, we have the Indianapolis Colts, Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, New England Patriots. In the AFC Central, we have the Bengals, Browns, Steelers, and Houston Oilers. And in the AFC West, we have the Los Angeles Raiders, Kansas City Chiefs, San Diego Chargers, Denver Broncos, and Seattle Seahawks. Uh, yeah, and then in the NFC, we have the uh, NFC East, Central, and West. NFC East is made up of the Dallas Cowboys, New York Giants, Phoenix Cardinals, Philadelphia Eagles, and Washington Redskins at the time, Washington football team now, obviously. Uh, NFC Central is made up of the Minnesota Vikings, Chicago Bears, Green Bay Packers, Detroit Lions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
Uh, and the NFC West is the San Francisco 49ers, Los Angeles Rams, Atlanta Falcons, and New Orleans Saints. Thank you. All right, 1994, the Cardinals, um, wanting to be more inclusive to the people of Arizona, changed their names from the Phoenix Cardinals to the Arizona Cardinals. Okay, yeah, 1995 saw an expansion, adding the Jacksonville Jaguars and Carolina Panthers, so a net plus two, bringing the league total to 30 teams. All right, then we got some major changes here. The, the Raiders relocate back to Oakland, and the Rams move out to St. Louis, leaving Los Angeles without a team for the first time in 50 years. High and dry. Uh, 96, uh, Mike's Cleveland Browns relocated to Baltimore, and the name was changed to the Ravens. All right, time out. I can't believe, first of all, I can't believe this happened. And second of all, I don't, so they went back and rewrote this. So first of all, it's a franchise moving, right? So that Ravens were supposed to maintain all of the Browns' like history and everything like that. But yeah. somehow some, some lawsuits go on and all this other stuff happens. And so the city of Cleveland and the franchise of the Cleveland Browns own the history of the Cleveland Browns, the, the current iteration that we have now, own the, the history of the Cleveland Browns with a three-year gap in between. And they consider the Ravens a, an expansion, expansion team. team. Okay. Yeah. Thank All God. Right. Yeah. No kidding. They got that one right at least. Yeah, that's good. That's that's a very. I don't mean to go on a on a diatribe here, but the uh, the Sonics. I think still the Oklahoma City Thunder don't have the Sonics history. Um, that that still belongs to this. I think that was like part of the agreement for the city of Seattle to drop their lawsuit. Was that yes. So that's what it was. Our- they 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 left with the history, but the Seattle's the city of Seattle sued. And right. they're like, whatever, we'll just call it a new team. So when, not if, Seattle gets the Sonics back, we it'll will be the Sonics, it'll be the Sonics and we will have our history. Yep, yep. So um, back to the team movement. Uh, in 97, Mike, the Oilers relocate to Memphis for one season. And then Nashville renaming the team the Tennessee Oilers. I did not even know that. I did not know they moved to Memphis first. That's... Yeah, I think they were trying some places out and not sure where they were going to go. But again, like the Arizona Cardinals, like, hey, we're going to be inclusive. We're not just the Nashville Oilers. We're the Tennessee Oilers. No, it's very, that's interesting. So Then in 1999, those same Oilers, they renamed themselves to the Tennessee Titans. You know, they had to ask the... Uh, New York Jets, if they could use the name. Jets said, sure, we're not using it anymore. It's all yours. Um, and then they officially retire the Oilers. Yeah, you know, I wish they would have. I wish Hugh and Houston came back instead of being the Texans. I wish they would have just renamed them the Oilers. I love those old Oilers uniforms. and It's one of my favorite colors in sports, that, that Carolina blue. And then you outfit it with the the red mm-hmm. piping. It just To me, it just it looks amazing. I, I have to say, I don't dislike the Tennessee versions either with the with that Carolina blue and the dark blue and the gray. and there, But there is a lot of things. I think they need to... What's that thing when you have all the jewelry on and you spin around in the mirror and you take like take off the first thing you see? That's what they should do with the colors on their jerseys. Like turn around into a mirror and like, oh, that dark blue's got to go or that dark gray's got to go. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So um, obviously, uh, 1999, the Cleveland Browns finally get their team back. Um, They they are the Cleveland Browns came back to the city. They got a new stadium. 
Um, they're ready to go. Um, they retain the history they, championships, etc. Unfortunately, they draft Tim Couch number one in the draft that year. Um, I mean, he broke the NCA record for passing, so it wasn't necessarily a bad uh, pick. Well, I mean, it was in retrospect, yeah. but I mean, um, and I think they had Couldn't like, gotten, like 35, 40 something. starting quarterbacks since that yeah. pick, too. I mean, I need to, that's a stack guy yeah, thing for sure. I got Wasn't, couldn't they have had Donovan McNabb or like a few other? Honestly, man, I'm just, and... I'm not sure it would have mattered at the end of the day. Probably um, true. What ends up happening is you saw this with uh, David Carr um, with the Houston Texans um, when they drafted him in 02. It's like he didn't he didn't have the infrastructure in place to be successful. So he could have been much different if he was drafted by a team that knew how to coach and all these other things. So I, you know, I don't look at Tim couch as being a, a flop necessarily or a bust. Um, I look at it like, I'm not sure the Cleveland, which, and that's what their history says, right? They had yeah. like 40 quarterbacks over the next, you know, 20 years or whatever starting quarterback. So they weren't really good at either picking, uh, signing or, uh, uh, making those position, those players better. Right. Developing quarterbacks. They weren't good at that. I just counted. There's 31 teams at the end of the nineties after we had Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. I said 30 teams on here. So sorry. All right. So to end the 1990s, Mike, we have 31 teams, um, with, with Cleveland being added in there. Um, the American Football Conference, uh, still the East, Central, West. Uh, the AFC East is made up of the Indianapolis Colts, Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, and New England Patriots. Uh, AFC Central, the Cincinnati Bengals, Baltimore Ravens, Pittsburgh Steelers, Tennessee Titans, Jacksonville Jaguars, and the aforementioned Cleveland Browns. AFC West, Oakland Raiders, Kansas City Chiefs, San Diego Chargers, Denver Broncos, and Seattle Seahawks. There is a traffic jam in that AFC Central. There are six teams in that uh, before they they uh, realigned. Yeah, and then the NFC, we have in the East, the Cowboys, Giants, uh, now Arizona Cardinals, uh, Eagles, and Washington football team. In uh, the Central, we have the Vikings, uh, Bears, Packers, Lions, Bucks. Uh, remember when uh, the Packers and the Bucks would play, and then Berman would go the Bay of Pigs. This <laughs> is one of my favorite things. Um, NFC West, uh, we have the 49ers, Rams, uh, St. Louis Rams, uh, Falcons, Saints, and the new Carolina Panthers. You know, I always thought, why in the world are the Atlanta Falcons in the NFC West? Why are the Arizona Cardinals in the NFC East? It was just that it just made no sense whatsoever. They could have just flipped those two things, and it would have been. I think they try as best they can to maintain the matchups that have been happening. I guess St. Louis Cardinals in the and NFC East makes a little bit more sense than the Arizona Cardinals. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you? It's kind of a hodgepodge. That's what I feel about the NBA. Is like teams are kind of scattered yeah, like in a way that it makes it really difficult. New Orleans is in the Western Conference. Yeah, so you get a let's say we get a, a Las Vegas team and a Seattle team brings it up to thirty two. Like, how do you break that down? So you probably send Memphis and New Orleans to the East. But well, I actually I actually took the liberty of breaking down the entire conference. If Las Vegas and Seattle got an expansion team in the NBA someday, I'll, I'll, I'll show that to you. But yeah, we won't, we won't discuss it here. Cross that. <laughs> So the next category, uh, we're going to talk about the changes made to the game to make it better, improve it. Um, so um, to start that off, in 1990, um, 
they uh, made some efforts to speed up the game. So uh, the play clock coming out of timeouts and admin stoppages re was reduced to 25 seconds from 30. Um, the 45 second clock um, is what they use in all other scenarios. Also there in 1992, wildcard teams are added to the playoff bracket, uh, one for each conference. So we're, we're expanding further and getting more teams uh, into the playoffs there. Yeah, the, uh, also um, a, the idea of a legal forward pass was updated. Uh, the, pass, the passer doesn't have to have their entire body on the side of the line of scrimmage. They just have some part of the body over that. So there's the line of scrimmage. You're not supposed to throw a forward pass once you get past that. So as long as like a foot, a toe, an elbow, or something is on your side of that line of scrimmage, it's a, it's a, a good forward pass. No, it's a good rule because you know you see that quite often now, and those, they, those it seems like those quarterbacks know exactly how far they can go, and like oh his foot was behind the line, so it's good pass. You know? Yeah, I mean that's those were it's nice to have that replay. No shoelace was there, <laughs> so they also added some uh, some rules to the touchback piece here. If a, if a player fumbles the ball through the side or the back of an opponent's end zone, it's a touchback, so don't fumble. If a player fumbles the ball in their own end zone and the opponent knocks it out of bounds, it's a touchback. So formerly that was a safety. Oh, wow. But if if you get a blocked punt or something like that and it goes into the back of the end zone or it goes into the end zone and that defensive player hits it, knocks it out of the back of the end zone, that's a touchback uh, for the for the offense, the kicking team. They get basically a new set of downs. Gotcha, gotcha. Again, don't fumble. Yeah, no doubt. All right, 1992, um, the NFL stopped using uh, the re uh, replay system due to reviews taking too long and slowing down the game. So we kind of talked that, talked about that a little bit in uh, last week's episode. Uh, they'll end up bringing it back uh, later, um, and I believe it was 1999, um, yep. and that's the new and improved version that we know now. Um, players, uh, another rule, um, players lined up in the backfield cannot chop block that's what that means is diving at the knees of a player that is engaged with another player so if that offensive lineman is engaged with um, the defensive lineman that running back can't come up and chop at the knees because he's already good rule, engaged man. yeah good rule they really you can see like these rules that are really starting to move towards player safety like teams are like my my starting defensive tackle just had his knees blown out because, you know, he's being held up and, and blocked. And uh, it's, you know, they're really trying to, they're slowly trying to help. Yeah. Kind no, of that's, the that's players. Good, man. It's player safety. in the right direction for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in 1993, the regular play clock dropped from 45 seconds to 40 seconds. They also another, another way of uh, trying to speed the game up a little bit. Yeah, so that's the theme for this decade, really, is speeding up the game. Um, I believe that, like, with the passing and incomplete passes, cause a clock to stop. So more passing, more drops, more clock stoppage, and then you add on top of that, you know, you have a long, you know, replay scenario. They're really trying to like where all these different offensive improvements we've made on the game are actually increasing the length of the game we got to get it back down again so they start trying to kind of chip away at these different things to improve the, the game flow yeah they got to have a good product at the end of the day absolutely yep 
So they also updated the intentional grounding in 1993. Uh, passer can throw the ball out of bounds as long as they are uh, outside of what they call the tackle box or pocket. Um, this is the vertical lines that extend from back towards the other end zone out, you know, where their tackles, tackles line up on yeah. the line. Yeah. Um, the ball has to land beyond the line of scrimmage, of course. Um, the also they added where the player can take the snap and spike it, spike it immediately to stop uh, the game clock. So that Mr. was a big Dan thing. Marino. Well, that was a fake, of course, right, but he right. could have done it. That well, that's that that rule set that up. <laughs> there it is. All right, 1994. Um, they adopted the two point conversion. Cool. We see that now. It gives opportunity for teams to decide whether they want to go for the tie with the extra point attempt or. Or the win. It's kind of surprising that after the USFL, kind of the popularity of these little rules that the USFL had, that they didn't adopt that a little sooner. But who knows, like how these things work with, um, you know, the rules committees and all that stuff. It might have had to work its way through. Right, years, right. So. And then they run it in trials. A lot of stuff. A lot of times, what they used to do is in, in, in preseason games, they used to kind of run some of these things. So you'll have yeah. like these extended or different rules for um, instant replay or these different point scenarios or clock speeds are different, stuff like right. that. They kind of uh, pilot them, if you will. Uh, yeah. And then a couple of rules regarding kickoffs, Mike. Uh, the starting point of all kickoffs in 1994 is moved back five yards from the 35 yard line to the 30 yard line. And I'm guessing this is to, you know, make it a little more exciting, more kickoff returns instead of just kicking the ball out of the end zone or uh, having touchbacks constantly. Um, And then also kickoff tees can no longer be more than one inch in height. And previously they had to be three inches or less. Wow. I mean, they really start putting on like these, I guess it makes sense. You want everybody using the same thing and you have to set specs so people don't like take, you know, advantages, but man, they are specific. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, the neutral zone infraction laws, um, laws, (laughs) rules were updated. Um, So a dead ball foul is when a defensive player enters into the neutral zone, causing the offensive player to move. So they used to do this flinch move that, you know, would sometimes draw an offensive lineman off uh, off the line for a false start. Um, With this rule in place, if they do that, then it's a neutral zone infraction and it's a defensive penalty, not an offensive penalty. No, that's I feel like that's a good rule as well. Okay, also in 94 there, Mike, all field goals attempted and missed beyond the 20-yard line. The defensive team taking possession will get the ball at the spot of the kick. Oh. Where before, I guess. Versus the line of scrimmage. Instead of the line of scrimmage, they get it from where they kick. So it it kind of puts a lot of pressure on the team. If you're going to try like a 60-yard field goal, you're going to give the opposing team the ball back at the 50 you know, whatever, six-yard line or something like that. Uh, sorry, 46-yard line. Right. Not Math's not my strong suit. Clearly. Uh, but if the field goal attempt is inside of the 20-yard line or on the 20-yard line, the defensive team taking possession gets the ball at the 20. So the worst you can get if on a missed field goal, worst you can get is the 20-yard line. Best you can get, I don't know, is whatever crazy uh, – long field goal the team tries and misses right yeah it it helps it goes into the old calculator when you figure out what you're going to do at a you know on a particular part of the field and you know what time's left and all that so um also an interesting thing that i found out um 
1994, they this is where they started announcing the end of the quarter on the microphone. So you'll see at the end of a quarter, at the end of the half, uh, the referee will get on the microphone and go, this is the end of the half and wave his hands. Um, prior to that, 1965 to 1993, they just fired a starter's pistol. Huh. It just seems so strange. I, like, cool. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't even known that from my, I don't remember watching them firing off starter pistols everywhere. Yeah, I have no recollection of that either. That's that's pretty interesting, though. Uh, yeah, also in 94 there, um, uh, they put in a rule, no one on the receiving team can block below the waist during a play in which there is a kickoff, safety, kick, punt, field goal attempt, or extra point kick, with one exception. Immediately at the snap of these plays, those defenders on the line of scrimmage lined up on or inside the normal tight end position can block low, which is kind of an interesting little twist on, I guess, uh, uh, that low block and or blocking below the waist, which, yeah. you know, I don't know. I thought that was, uh, that was something interesting to throw in there. So, so moving on there to 1995, I found a few pretty interesting rule changes. The emergency quarterback or the third quarterback may now enter the game in just the fourth quarter, regardless of the other two quarterbacks being able to play. This means that if the third string quarterback enters the game, the first and or second quarterback may re-enter, unlike the past two seasons where the emergency quarterback would only play if the first two were unable to resume play. So I know we've I've seen that, and I think they may have done gone back to making it so the third third string quarterback can't come in, but it might still be just like he's only allowed to come in in the fourth quarter. You just don't see the third string quarterback Not even having often. to come in very yeah. often. So, uh, also in '95, the receiver knocked out of bounds by a defensive player can now return to the field to make a play. Um, Blocked out, but you have to get right back in right yeah, away. You, to, you, you can't stay out, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Quarterbacks may now receive communication from the bench via a small radio transmitter in their helmet. This proposal was originally run on a test basis in 1994 during the preseason, but was scrapped. So they implemented it uh, in 95. They got that 30-second time frame to receive right, the play it, call. Right, and it cuts out, yeah. exactly. So in 96, uh, hits with the helmet to the head by the defender will be flagged as personal fouls and subject to fines. This is being done to protect the offense, particularly the quarterbacks, which seems to be a growing trend in, in football up till now. So, Yeah, they want more offense. It's more exciting you know, product to watch, and they want games to be at a particular pace, You know, partially because they have other games and programming that they need to wedge in, so they need to they only have a certain margin there to get all of those things in. So. Yeah, 1997, um, we have something called the Emmett Smith rule. Um, it was created uh, to penalize the offending player 15 yards for taking off their helmets in celebration. So we see that quite a bit. Like you can take your helmet off like you hurt yourself or something like that or mm-hmm. it's out of whack or whatever, but they, you will get flagged a personal foul for taking your helmet yeah, off. Yeah, just rip it off to celebrate. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and in 97 also, Mike, uh, they put in a – Another rule, uh, when a team fakes a punt and throws the ball downfield, pass interference calls on the two outside defenders who are actually trying to block the coverage man from getting downfield and might not know the ball has been thrown 
have been eliminated. So you can't get, you know, it's kind of a ticky tack foul that, that goes away now. So that's good. I mean, I think they're doing a decent job kind of protecting both the offensive and defensive players and making, you know, the game yeah. flow a little bit better. All right. 1998 teams were penalized for having 12 players or more in the huddle. They don't want 12 in the huddle. Um, if you have one guy that's kind of running off why another guy's running on, but the second they get in the huddle, that's a penalty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, the coin toss will be called before the coin itself is tossed. And this was a mid season rule change because I believe it was on the Thanksgiving day game. Um, and I feel like it might've been Jerome Bettis. They, they flipped the coin uh, or they, as it landed, they, you know, they, he said he called one thing and they said, they were like, no, you called heads or something. And you couldn't, you, you couldn't really hear what he said, but it was like a big controversy. Uh, I think it, and I think that was going to overtime and they ended up, I don't know if they ended up losing or not. Well, I'll have stack guy check on that, but I'm pretty sure that was, it was Pittsburgh playing some, one of the teams on uh, Thanksgiving day, either Detroit or Dallas. And there was a big controversy. And so they changed, they were just like, we're not doing it anymore. You call it uh, while the, uh, before the, the coin is actually tossed into the air. So, well, I'm glad they solved that problem, but it seems like in the moment, just flip the coin again. Yeah. Like right. I didn't hear you, dude. You lost yeah. anyway. Let's just flip the coin and do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Also in 99, Mike, uh, tinted visors are banned from players' face masks, except for if it's a medical necessity. Thank God that came back. Yeah. It looks so cool. It does. I love it. Marshawn Lynch. Whew. LaDainian Tomlinson. Let's go. Yeah. All right, 1999, uh, instant replay returns with the challenge system installed. Um, you know, this was, uh, like we've talked about many times, this was a direct result of Vinny Testaverde's phantom touchdown, uh, keeping the Seahawks out of the playoffs in 1998. Um, also, uh, the other rule change we had from 99 was clipping is now illegal around the line of scrimmage, just as it is on the rest of the field. So it breaks it down so you can't. No clipping, nowhere, no how. Don't do it. There it is. Man, a lot of changes in the 90s. Definitely trying to yeah, there's there's themes to these for sure so um let's start with the fantasy draft let's roll right through this um, jeremy you started the draft uh with quarterbacks who do you have uh so my qb my first selection uh was steve young of the san francisco 49ers i have him in 1992 94 and 98 he had 11,600 plus yards passing and 96 touchdowns uh, another 1280 yards rushing and 17 more touchdowns. All right. So um, it was pretty apropos. I was listening to um, the Ryan Rosillo podcast today. Shout out. He had um, Trent Dilfer on, and he was talking about Steve Young. He's like, the guy ran a 4-4. He, he was faster than uh, Jerry Rice or something like that and wow. beat him in a race um, and could throw the ball on a dime. Like, the thing is, you don't realize how gifted these guys are and he for sure was um the most gifted quarterback that we saw in this decade for the three years that you selected he almost had a thousand fantasy points 976 by far the the most of any quarterback that decade so that is a that is a good pick all right my first pick brett Favre. not so exciting although one of the better uh, players uh, in nfl history had uh, 1200 over 12,000 passing yards, 110 TDs. 
um, and another 519 with seven TDs rushing. I think the difference here really is just the rushing yards. And well, 110 touchdowns to 96 in passing. Oh, but if you if you look at they're yeah. they're roughly the same. But we're talking uh, Steve Young had another seven or 800 more yards. Yeah, rushing yards. Yeah. yeah, that was the difference at the end of the day. Got it. Well, my uh, speaking of running quarterbacks, my next uh, QB selection was Randall Cunningham uh, from the Eagles and the Vikings. I uh, had him from uh, in 1990, 92, and 98. Uh, he had just under 10,000 yards passing and 83 touchdowns and another 1,620 yards rushing and 11 touchdowns. Yeah, so he was my pick, um, my second pick for quarterbacks in the 1980s. Right. I think you just went, what? And I was hoping that you'd see something shiny that right. wasn't Randall and uh, that I would uh, he would have felt fallen to me, but right. uh, it doesn't look like it. Um, my second pick, uh, Warren Moon. Um, so Warren Moon had um, 13,000 yards, 89 touchdowns, 365 rushing, and um, four, four rushing touchdowns. Great pick, man. I can't be mad at uh, my guy Warren Moon. All right, Mike, uh, you want to take away the running backs? Yeah, so I had the first pick in running backs. Uh, my first pick was uh, Emmett Smith. He um, ran for uh, almost 5,000 rushing yards, 64 touchdowns, and another 1,000 receiving with two touchdowns. Not bad. Uh, I, I went ahead and grabbed Terrell Davis, who was really, I mean, a flash in the paint. He didn't have a long career. Um, kind of was I think was he undrafted or seventh round draft pick or something. He wasn't like that. undrafted, but it was yeah, yeah six or seven. Way way down pick. there. Um, so for the Denver Broncos, I had him from ninety six to ninety eight. Uh, he had fifty two hundred and ninety six rushing yards and forty nine touchdowns in those three years, and another eight hundred fourteen yards receiving and four more touchdowns, including a two thousand yard rushing season. Yeah, yeah. What was at ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, him and Barry Sanders actually. Um, in the last game of 97, Barry Sanders and 98 for uh, Terrell Davis got to 2,000 yards rushing, which yeah. was impressive. And because I think they were only at the time the third and fourth, either third and fourth or fourth and fifth uh, running backs with 2,000 yards. Yeah, I believe uh, Terrell Davis was one of those players where they weren't sure, like based on the number of years and his overall um, rushing yards. You know, he's kind of a cusper for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But when you look at, when you compare him to somebody like Gail Sayers. So Gail Sayers is the guy that got into the Hall of Fame, had, was a short career, um, not exactly a flash in the pan per se, but wasn't as prolific as, let's say, I don't know, OJ or Walter or something like that. So um, I think he's the case study for this type of thing. So Terrell Davis definitely is has more yards than that. But I think his two Super Bowls, the fact that those um, teams were really centered around him for the most part, and that yeah. zone blocking scheme that they have, and his ability to, um, you know, well, he got the two thousand yards. So if you, I think you factor in all those things, it's definitely you're looking at a, a Hall of Fame career. Yeah. All right, and uh, my second pick, uh, Barry Sanders, um, 1990, 91, and 97. Uh, probably my favorite player over the years. Collected a lot of his cards and everything like that. He was the most fun player that I ever um, saw to watch. There was at any moment he could, he could, you know, you felt like he was going to break it. He, he could do amazing things. So in that time frame, he had uh, 
just under 5,000 yards uh, rushing another uh, with 40 um, rushing TDs and another 1,000 yards receiving with seven touchdowns. So Barry Sanders, second choice running back. My second running back choice uh, for the 90s, Mike, was Marshall Falk, or as Chris Berman likes to say, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Uh, he, I had him with the Colts and the Rams for 94 with the Colts, 98-99 with the Rams. Uh, he had 3,920 yards rushing in, and 20 touchdowns and 2,550 yards receiving and another 10 touchdowns. Yeah, um, I first saw him when he was playing for San Diego State. Um, it was a Friday night game. I forget who he played against, but just absolutely destroyed them. I, it was, it was like, this guy is amazing. Like, this is one of the first times I watched somebody in college and in my mind went, like, this guy is definitely going to be amazing in the pros. And it was the first time I ever saw a running back um, line up wide in an in a X receiver position. I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is insane. I mean, the guy that was that talented that can beat cornerbacks – off the line and catch deep passes. I mean, what can you do with this? And, you know, they showed us. Yeah. His, uh, the, a football life or my football life or whatever it's called on the NFL network of Marshall Falk is very interesting. I suggest anybody go watch that. I'll go rewatch it. Yeah. All right. Your, your pick first for wide receivers. Who oh, do we got? That, that was an easy choice, Mike. I had to uh, go with Jerry Rice from the 49ers for, 93 to 95 he had um he actually had 41 yards passing and a touchdown and 198 rushing yards and four touchdowns in that time but he made his money with 4,850 yards receiving and another 43 touchdowns on top of the ones he already got throwing and running so I heard he got his hands from bricklaying with his dad so he'd get up on the house and dad would just toss him bricks all day and just catch him and just put it on and just stack them that's crazy. And I'm just like, and that's exactly what he did, man. He caught all the bricks. And, man, with this one, you're probably putting me putting me out of business for this week. All right, so my first pick um, for receiver was Chris Carter. All he does is catch touchdowns. Um, not as many as Jerry, though, so whatever. Um, he <laughs> ran, or not ran, caught 3,600 yards and 43 touchdowns. Chris Carter. So we have him from 95, 97, 98, all with the Minnesota Vikings. Okay. Um, my second uh, wide receiver pick was Sterling Sharp of the Green Bay Packers from 92 to 94. Uh, he had... 3,854 yards receiving and 42 touchdowns, which, you know, it's only one one less than uh, Jerry Rice. So he was a touchdown machine as well. Yeah, he threw in 31 yards rushing also. So. And he also had that special helmet with the strap and the yeah. snap. That, that you, you sent me the picture, and I was like, I, have never, I had never seen that before. <laughs> yeah, to, support, so was, to help crazy. his neck, he had a neck injury um, in the middle of his career and ended up ending his career. But right. he was really, really good for a lot of years. Um, I took Isaac Bruce, uh, teammate of the aforementioned Marshall Falk with the uh, Rams. The greatest show on turf. Yeah, he uh, 4,284 receiving yards, 32 touchdowns. So I have him from 95, 96, and 99. Man, if you were had any of the Rams during the 1999 fantasy football season, you pretty much probably won your probably league. won your league. That's all it takes. One or two good players, really. Um, all right, so that is it for um, receivers, right? Yeah, you're yeah. up on flex. Uh, flex. Let me pull this up here. 
My first flex pick is uh, Thurman Thomas, Buffalo Bills, 1990-91-92. Um, he ran for 4,191 rushing yards, 27 touchdowns, um, 1,600 passing yards, and another 10 touchdowns receiving, not passing yards, I'm sorry, receiving yards, and another um, 10 uh, receiving TDs. I think it's
Yeah, his son actually went to was between the University of Washington and the University of Texas a few years back and ended up I think they're from Texas, so he stayed stayed home and, and played for Texas. But uh, I was, I was had, uh, had my hopes up. Yeah, missed out there, I guess. All right, yeah. tight end. What do we got? There's really only one choice this decade. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I had to, you know, I had to reunite um, Sterling Sharp with his brother Shannon and uh, pulled in Shannon Sharp. I had him for 93, 96, and 98. I, I had 28. 125 yards receiving and added in 29 touchdowns. So, I mean, the guy was just scoring. You know, I really expected, this is another shock to me, I really expected probably late 80s, but definitely the 90s for the tight end position to become a little bit more, um, to kind of jump off the page a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really doesn't happen till the, to the 2000s. I did look ahead a little bit and started digging into some players uh, from from that decade. And that's when you start seeing the Gonzalez and um, uh, the Gates and all these other players that Converted we... basketball yeah. players. That yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So that's when we st- we're going to start seeing a better, like, swath of tight ends. But I was... He's by far the best of, of the 90s, Shannon Sharp. So um, I didn't pick first, so I didn't get him. You know, you didn't what are you gonna get, do? I mean, do you want me to make your pick for you like I did in our text in our text uh, exchange? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a little background. So he knew who I was going to pick, obviously, with Ben Coates. Ben Technicolor Coates, that was my first pick of the tight ends. Um, so I had him um, from 94, 97, 98, played for the New England Patriots. He had uh, – He was tw- a good one. I, might have, I may or may not have had a Ben Coates jersey. But I got it like J.C. Penney's or something. Hey, I'm, like not, I'm not hating 16, on that. Yeah. Um, J.C. Penney, shout out. Uh, so he had 2,593 receiving yards and 24 touchdowns. Um, certainly not up. He's probably a tier down from a Shannon Sharp. Like it's almost Shannon Sharp was on a tier on tier one, and then it was like tier two Ben Coates. And, right. um, but you found somebody I think you could almost put on uh, a tier one level. Well, and he's like he's right there with uh, Ben Coates for sure, and that's Wesley Walls of the Carolina Panthers um, for ninety six, ninety seven, and ninety nine, uh, and he had twenty two hundred eighty one yards receiving and twenty eight touchdowns. So um, you did it again, man. You found a player. I didn't have him on my list of tight ends. I don't know how. Um, I overlooked it. I mean, it's possible so much data to look through, but right. that's a really good find. I mean, because, yeah, he had to have been the third highest scoring uh, for sure. He, and he couldn't have been too far behind Ben Coase, I would imagine. Uh, from a fantasy perspective? Yeah. Uh, like a point. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel even better. Yeah. So I my, my, my last pick uh, for <laughs> tight end was Brent Jones, San Francisco 49ers, um, 1990, 93-94. We're looking at 2,146 receiving yards and another 17 touchdowns. Yeah, Brent he was always Jones. an old – he was a reliable, you know, guy who could block. Jay Novacek and Brent Jones. Like, I, I looked at Jay Novacek as well, and just I remember, like, being in Dallas during most of the 90s, a uh, large chunk anyway, half um, – I got a chance to watch him play. It just seemed like he did – more when I watched him play the game than I actually right. when I looked at the stats it, it just didn't match up in my brain so right all right well now we're uh, we're on to kicker here and I I was I was praying that you were gonna just like 
be like, I'll take Pete Stoyanovich or somebody, <laughs> you know, I don't know who, but uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I was just like, go ahead, man. Just, so this, this sure. one's pretty easy to find. You know, you just look at scoring leaders year over year and you, like most of them are kickers at this point. Um, you get a Marshall Falk in there, you get a, you know, an Earl Campbell in there, but most of them are kickers by this point. So it's pretty easy to find. I picked Gary Anderson, uh, 93, 97, 98, had a total of 405, uh, points mm-hmm. in that period of time. 405. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I had John Casey, um, from 91, 95, 96, and that was with the Carolina Panthers. I, 91 may have been with the Seahawks. I don't know. Um, I'll have to double check that. Stack guy will definitely let me hear about it. Uh, he had 352 fantasy points. I didn't even think to go look at the leading scorers in the league, so I probably gave up some points right there. Um, but he had to be up there pretty high. I think he had – I looked at who had the most made field goals, and after Gary Anderson, I think he was number two. Um, so, Well, they don't give you total points, but like when you go and you look at a player, you can scan down in pro football reference – uh, to the uh, up, um, I think it's updated scoring or something okay. like that, and they bring out the total points. You don't have to do the math on on field goals and gotcha, extra points and gotcha. stuff. So makes it a little bit easier to look. Um, I find like giving you all these little secrets and stuff. It's kind of making my life a little bit more miserable. <laughs> so yeah, um, let's uh, let's hear what the, the yeah. So um, final score was your your score is seventy five oh nine dot six four. And uh, I came in at a total of 73.19. So you beat me by just under 200 points. Mm-hmm. Um, we're tied 3-3 three to three over all of our... It's a new, whole new ball game, man. We've got, we got two to go. So we've established some, some more rules for ourselves. You yeah. can't give me two or three players and say, which one, three. Which one three. scored more points? <laughs> I can't, I'm not. Two. I, you're, I'm, as a competitor, I don't want to do your research for I you. I got you. All right, I got so you. Do some work, and then, and then we'll figure this out. Uh, All right, so that ends the fantasy draft. That was a fun one. Uh, good to see Jeremy is back up off the schneid. So um, let's go to our final category, I guess, um, the winners and losers. So why don't you start us off? All right, my uh, first winner is long-suffering Seahawks fans. And you know what? This is our podcast, Mike. We can we can talk about the Seahawks if we want to. Uh, at the end of the of the '90s, Mike Holmgren is hired as the coach for the '99 season, uh, setting us up for the years to come and, and immediately making the playoffs. Which I had season tickets that year. I am a diehard Seahawks fan. Made the playoffs. I couldn't believe it. I was freaking out and. We got the first round, and we so we won our division that year, mm-hmm. and had a home game. And the wild card team from the AFC that came to play us was the Miami Dolphins, and Dan Marino beat the brakes off of the Seahawks, just destroyed us. And uh, you know, and then I think I believe then the next week they got destroyed by Jacksonville, and I think Dan Marino retired after that. So. Um, yeah, he retired at the end of the 99 yeah, season. So we, yeah, so we you know, got to see Dan Marino's last win, I guess, even though it was at the expense of, of the Seahawks. Um, but, no, I just thought that, you know, I think that the end of the 90s was kind of the jumping-off point. That that playoff run was kind of the jumping-off point for the Seahawks over the next 20 years, you know, really. You know, that's a really good point. I think that the 90s were a very dark time. We got some pretty high draft picks because we were pretty bad, and we kind of 
messed up on a lot of them. Um, we there was some controversy as to whether we were going to move to LA. You know, you know, we said previously that the LA teams had lost, and there was a buyer that wanted to buy the Seahawks, Ken Baring, and move him down to Anaheim or LA or whatever it was. Or he he owned them at the time. Yeah, yeah. He did move them. Did I, have I told you the story? He didn't move them. No, he did move them. He moved their training camp. Their their OTAs were taking place in Anaheim. Yeah, you we, told me the story. Did yeah. I tell you the yeah. story? Have, did I tell it on the air? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, I, no, you didn't tell it on there. You told it to me in, in, in private. Okay. Well, not private. Like, we weren't in a room. The Thumbnail, two of us. Yeah. yeah, we were. <laughs> Thumbnail sketch. Uh, family went on a vacation to Disneyland when I was, like, 15 years old, maybe 16. And uh, we were staying at a hotel, and there was just these monster athletes there. And I'm like, what the hell? And somebody's like, oh, yeah, they're the Seahawks are having their training or their uh, off season uh, OTAs in Anaheim. And they had moved, they, they were trying to move. And I guess he was, uh, Ken Baring wanted to move the team to Anaheim. And he was told by the NFL, if he didn't move them back to Seattle for training camp, he was going to get fined like a million dollars a day or something. So he did, but yeah, the OTAs, they were taking place. Like the Seahawks were staying at our hotel and like we were playing basketball with them, and the what a, uh, yeah, that's it, it was so the, sweet. It was the coolest thing that has ever happened to me as a sports fan. So. Well, let me restate: they never played a regular season game as the Los Angeles Seahawks. No, no, definitely not. But yeah, it was coming off of that because I think that happened in '96, and then it was a tough know, time, and yeah. it was good to see one of the best coaches in the NFL come to our team, and, and he eventually, within uh, within the next decade, took us to a Super Bowl. So. Yeah. Uh, really happy that he, you know, decided to sign with the Seahawks. And I think it really got us moving in the right direction towards what we became in the later uh, part Absolutely. of the 2010s. Yeah, my one of my, my first winner for this decade is John Elway. Um, after he after three Super Bowl losses in the 80s, he comes back and wins back to back in 1998, 99. And he was. After, I think, the 1998 one, he was unclear or undecided whether he was going to come back. And he looked at his team and said, guys, we can do this again. Comes back, wins the Super Bowl at the end of 1990, um, goes through Favre and uh, Chris Chandler, I guess, with the with the Atlanta Falcons in 99, right. and then just retires on at the top of the mountain. Yeah, it was, uh, that was... Yeah, he definitely was a winner there because he... Yeah, that was a, a storybook way to go out. Um, and my other winner from the, the decade is uh, both fantasy football and football video game fans because, you know, the Internet comes along so you can actually get, like, updated scores and stats and all this stuff to play fantasy football if you so choose and, and actually play it online instead of having to do it over the phone or, you know, there was all kinds of weird ways that people did this back uh, in, in the early 90s and late 80s. Um, but I thought that was cool. And then also, the, yeah, from the video game perspective, like, I mean, Madden is getting huge at that, you know, in the, in the, in the 90s. You have, uh, you know, the, it just, it was, you know, Tecmo Bowl, Tecmo Super Bowl, all this stuff. Like, I just thought, as a kid of the 90s, I thought that was, like, the best time ever. Yeah, so baseball cards, football cards, first allowed, you know, fans to really kind of interact and kind of 
have some tactile response to to the sport right right and the the original games you had like that one that vibrates the players across i mean there, yeah. there's no uh, identification of a player right you're just playing some random football game so the video games are the first time that you could really take some of your favorite teams your favorite players and you could go out there and you you could pretend you were them doing something so that really i mean Obviously, the NFL licenses it for a reason. Uh, I think it's good for their bottom line. It gets fans involved, um, gets them more, you know, diving into more NFL content. Um, yeah. yeah, but it was a lot of fun. It was for sure. All right, my second uh, winner um, again is the Sun Belt. Um, they got two new teams: uh, Jacksonville, Carolina, uh, during this decade, and then the Oilers. Also, Houston's in the Sun Belt, uh, but they got they got relocated to Nashville, and then of course, you know, a few years later, uh, Houston got the Texans back. So, yep, Sun Belt, <laughs> and they get all the Super Bowls. Yeah, no, they do. Well, it's, yeah, who wants to go to Detroit for a Super Bowl? Yeah, my final winner for the nineteen um, nineties is the NFC East. They won five of the ten Super Bowls of the decade. Uh, we had the New York Giants, Washington Football Team, and the Cowboys won it three times. Oh, beautiful man! Um, yeah, I like that one. Uh, let's get to the losers. Yeah, so my first loser is now. I'm not saying he's a loser as a person or anything like that, but just. Scott Norwood, he missed that iconic field goal. The closest that the Bills got to winning a Super Bowl, that first one that they were in uh, versus the Giants with the wide right kick. Um, Yeah, so Bill Belichick was a defensive coordinator at the time for the Giants and kind of had the cheat code for the K-Gun offense that um, Jim Kelly and and the Buffalo Bills were running. They weren't able to put up the big points on them, and, and the Giants kept them pretty close. But they did manage to drive down the field at the end of the game and put themselves in a position to win with a reasonably short uh, field goal, and it just kind of sailed right, and the Giants won. Yeah, I, I remember that vividly. Uh, so my, my really my only loser of the decade, I just thought this was hilarious, um, is Leon Lett. So... 93 Super Bowl. Let it go. Leon Lett returns a Buffalo fumble 64 yards. And as he approaches the goal line, Buffalo wide receiver Don Beebe knocks the ball out of his hand after racing the length of the field and uh, catching the defensive tackle in a premature celebration. Did you, but he held it down like towards his, like below his knee as he's trying to cross the line. So he right. put it like right in Beebe's like swing radius it's i mean it's one of the most iconic like screw up videos in in history of the league you know i mean didn't he come back and do that thing in that uh, versus the um it was versus the miami dolphins oh yeah i'm I'm not i'm not done here oh we got more we got more on the unlet all right less than a year later on thanksgiving (laughs) day uh the following season uh dallas appears to win the thanksgiving day game uh, when the Dolphins kicker Pete Stoyanovich's kick is blocked by Cowboys defensive end Jimmy Jones. But Leon Lett, again, muffs the ball while attempting to recover it. it uh, and Miami center Jeff Dellenbach falls on the ball at the one-yard line with three seconds remaining in the game. Dolphins call a timeout, get a second chance, and kick a game-winning field goal. 
beautiful. Just, That's just, the let it go. Yeah. Like you get that announce, it's like, let it go, Leah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, more of a comical view of uh, my loser. But yeah, that was uh, Leon Letts, definitely two of the, the most bonehead plays in, in uh, NFL history. Iconic stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, my next loser, um, the Buffalo Bills fans. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit um, in the who won the decade portion of this. But um, they made it to four straight Super Bowls. Just an amazing feat in itself. Um, all Losing all uh, four, um, which is pretty damned heartbreaking there's a great uh documentary a 30 for 34 called uh, four falls of buffalo um check it out it's hard to watch because you really feel for the players and everything like that you want them to get just one yeah um and i had him in all those super bowls um versus the cowboys or at least the two um but um yeah those they were not even close those particular ones. So yeah. Buffalo Bills fans, uh, my second loser. And finally, my last loser, me. Wait, wait, wait. Why, why, are, why I, are you a loser? I moved to Dallas in like 1992 and 91, 92, somewhere in that time, ra- time frame and left in 95. So... 96 somewhere around there so i was right in that wheelhouse for the the super bowl run for these guys it was nothing but texas there were stars everywhere on every damn house um i actually worked in the plano north dallas neighborhood so like ken norton would come to the grocery store i worked at i quit that job because I'm tired of running into Dallas Cowboy people and I went over and I worked at Blockbuster and Eric Williams came that's where he rented his movies the left tackle for that team and I'm just like I can't get away from these guys Um, and they win all these Super Bowls and it's just they're the Dallas Cowboy fans are insufferable Um, America's team stuff it's just becomes its own animal at some point and it was really rough to be a Seahawks fan in the 90s when they were so bad. God, and I yeah. couldn't even watch the games because it's not my market. I almost watched no Seattle Seahawks games right. during that period of time. Um, so it was a dark, dark period for, for old MJ. Well, old MJ. Yeah, well, what the hell is MEP doing to you, making you move to, moving you to Dallas as a, as a young man? I don't know. Dealing Texas Instruments that. came a-calling. Yeah. Um, funny story about the, the Cowboys from that um, – that those those 90s teams i always rooted for them because this like you mentioned the seahawks were terrible and my brother who also is a miami Dol- or a miami hurricanes fan was rooting for the buffalo bills because of june so i'm just like no i'm not rooting for what buffalo. is with it's you too buffalo i got we just it's uh it's good sibling rivalry man but it seems like it comes out of nowhere if that's organic <laughs> i know so crazy yeah yeah at least so, me and my brother are actually seahawks fans he's not like an eagles fan or anything Oh, that's cool. Well, my brother, they're both now Seahawks. We're all Seahawks fans now, right. but like in the, it was hard to, you know, they, in, in 91, the Seahawks, I think went one in 15. So it's tough to, tough to watch. And you couldn't watch any of the games because they were all blacked out. Yeah. You know, well, am tough. I the big loser here? Is this, are we done or did you have we're any done. more? No, that's, that's okay. The last I'm, one, the so I'm the big loser. Congratulations, MJ. All right. All right that ends our categories. Um, now it's time to discuss who won the decade. Um, so Jeremy, why don't you let us know who the winner is? So uh, this was the controversial finish here. I mean, yes. not really controversial if you follow all the rules, but uh, the Dallas Cowboys were our dynasty of the decade with uh, dynasty 
by decade score of 34. Uh, they went 97 and 63 in that uh, in the 1990s. Made the playoffs eight times. Conference champions three times. NFL champions three times. Back to back in 92 and 93, and then one again in 95. Um, Jimmy Johnson, who is the architect, um, won a national championship with the Miami Hurricanes in 1987. Leaves college to coach the Dallas Cowboys team with a new owner that recently fired Hall of Fame coach Tom Landry. Let's pause there for a second. So you're Jimmy Johnson, right? You leave a Miami program where you just won a national champion. You're moving to a team that is at the bottom of uh, the league. Right. Um, you have a new owner and they fired a legendary coach and you come in and how have... you never want to be the guy that follows the, the legend. You want to be the guy that follows so much the pressure. Guy, I, like, I don't think anyone else could have done that. So that's, it's the thing that's so impressive to me. And he, he starts this and we talked about this the other day. So I'll just give the heading and you kind of give me all the stuff that they get yeah. from this is he makes the, this iconic trade to ship Herschel Walker, who was a Dallas Cowboy at the time to Minnesota. So let's break down that trade for me. So uh, Minnesota gets Herschel Walker. The Cowboys get Jesse Solomon, who's a linebacker, Isaac Holt, a defensive back, Darren Nelson, a running back, David Howard, a linebacker, and Alex Stewart, a D end. And um, Isaac Holt was the only player to win a Super Bowl ring in 92. They had out of, no, out of that group. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. But they also got six draft picks. Who did they turn those guys into? Man, this was the thing. Emmett Smith, Russell Maryland, Kevin Smith, and Darren Woodson. And all four of the players were three-time Super Bowl champions. And cornerstones. Yeah. They, I mean, that, that's the, that was what they built their team off of. And they also yeah. got Troy Aikman in 1989 because they were, went, like, they were one of the worst teams in yeah. the league. They had the first draft pick. And then I think his year, I think they were, what, one in – 15, 15 prior right. and then um when they he was like two and two and 14 his first his yeah. rookie season so they got they were having high draft picks plus they got all these picks from minnesota and herschel walker didn't really pan out for minnesota at all so i mean look at his stats i mean he you know yeah. he never lifted a weight all of his stuff was like push-ups and pull-ups yeah i remember always seeing pictures he, of him, he, like, he had like video. this video like a training video it was all like calisthenics and stuff like that yeah, i thought that a, was really interesting just a monster little man. side note there so what's his legacy though like um when you talk about coaches right um i don't think it was a x's and o's for jimmy johnson i think his legacy is more like the ability to build the team. So having the wherewithal to trade these things and being strong enough to make those tough decisions. I think uh, managing the stars is was important, especially there, and no pun intended with the stars, but um, like you bring in guys, like Michael Irvin was very uh, boisterous and you had a lot yeah. of these like uh, personalities. You bring Dion in and he kind of fits in and they, they win that 96 Super Bowl. So it's really important to be able to manage those stars and get that ship moving in the right direction. And he really recognized the importance of assistant coaches. He hired, um, at least in that initial run, the David Wanstead and the Norv Turner, like these guys that became iconic offensive defensive coaches that went on to be to have some success as head coaches in their own right. He kind of like when we look at a Bill Belichick coaching tree, like he had one of those in that that small time frame, a pretty pretty crazy um coaching tree 
Yeah, and you know this team also, you know the the Hall of Famers on this team. So Jimmy Johnson obviously made the Hall of Fame. They had Charles Haley, Deion Sanders, Emmett Smith, Larry Allen, Michael Irvin, and Trey Aikman. I mean, it's, it's crazy. The triplets, you know, you think it's just yeah. Th- this team was had so much talent that. I, I, was, sus- I suspect fair. Darren Woodson's going to be added to that list very shortly. Because uh, yeah. looking at his numbers, they're actually, I think they're Hall of Fame worthy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Big uh, note to the Hall of Fame committee. Yeah, get, My, it, get, get it together. MJ says, get Darren in there. <laughs> All right, so um, that was our argument for the winner of the decade, Dallas Cowboys. So this is where a little bit of the controversy comes in. But again, um, the runner-up is the Buffalo Bills. They have a dynasty score of 35 which is one point more than the cowboys because of how many times they went to the super bowl um but because they didn't win they couldn't be considered yeah the the dynasty of the of the decade they were 103 and 57 in that decade which is crazy seven times they made the playoffs four conference championships they lost four straight super bowls from 1990 to 1993 tough yeah yeah they did dominate the AFC throughout that part of the decade, but ended up losing to the um, New York Giants, the wide right game, the Dallas Cowboys twice, and um, the Washington, Washington football team. So they were 0-4 against the NFC East in those Super Bowls. That, that is great. And that's, a, that, that's so impressive. Like you mentioned earlier, the NFC East is, is definitely the winner of that decade as, as a whole, you know. So one of the things I think the Buffalo Bills is like the reason I wanted to look at teams, not just winning championships as a uh, as a I wanted to make that more of a data point than the uh, the decider column. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to say there was a lot of great teams out there that didn't quite make it to the top of the mountain or they didn't do it as often as another team. Yeah. So this is one of those years. We also saw that in the 1970s where the Dallas Cowboys, who had only two Super Bowl wins, were the dynasty of the decade over the Pittsburgh Steelers, who had won four just because they were in the playoffs and they were in the conference championships in Super Bowls a lot. Yeah. So same here with the Buffalo Bills. All right, Mike. Uh, so our first honorable mention of the 90s is going to be the Denver Broncos. Uh, they had a dynasty by decade score of 23. Their record, you know, wasn't the greatest. They were 87 and 73. Um, they made the playoffs five times, conference champions two times, and they won those back-to-back Super Bowls in 97 and 98. And, you know, John Elway finally got his Super Bowl rings. And I, I, that's really why I feel like they're definitely the, the – have to be the first honorable mention just because – of the back to I mean winning back to back Super Bowls it's very easy. hard it's very not hard easy. and I think if that if you're looking at champions if you're only looking at championship champions and championships um, f- as a way to see what the best players or the best teams are in the league you have to take into these back to back things like the the Dolphins did in the 70s and what they did in the 90s I would probably, if I was only looking at those Super Bowl wins, it'd have to be Dallas and then probably Denver would be the runner-up. But again, we're doing this in a way to kind of... um, Shine a light on everybody. Yeah, all the the, the success over time, right? right. So And and Buffalo, what Buffalo did is impressive as hell. I mean, going to four straight Super Bowls, it's... I mean, yeah, it's mind-boggling. It's very I mean, tough. Those, those guys, and the, they had, like, that core was together for the majority of that time. So, you know, they're 
it, just the the how much like how tired they must have been because I you know watching this uh, Tom Brady man in the arena that we're gonna like, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in the next couple of uh, episodes. Um, he talks about after I think they had gone to the Super Bowl three out of four years or won three out of four Super Bowls. And he was just like, I was so tired. Just I, exhausted by 97. I'm sorry, 2007. Yeah, yeah, completely exhausted. Can't, you know, needed to break away basically and, and rest. So, and start taking care of his body anyway. So, yeah. So for me, the Broncos, um, this, this was the redemption of John Elway for me personally. I, I really had a tough time. He played really well against the Seattle Seahawks through those uh, uh, late eighties and nineties. He was like a killer for us. And, we, he would come into the kingdom and beat us and we'd go over to, you know, Denver and he'd beat us. And, you know, it was always an exciting game. And he just really, <laughs> it was hard to watch. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's Dan Marino if, if he doesn't win a Super Bowl, Right. 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 It's like one of the best ever that just couldn't get over the over the top. And he ran into some really really good teams in those uh, in the 1980s. But he he was good right away. So I mean, by the time I got to the end of the eight uh, the end of the 90s, I was like, let's Favre got his. Who cares? I want Elway to win. Yeah. And you know he was able to pull that out. And obviously, I wasn't impressed by an Atlanta Falcons team. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, that was it. Was a great run by him, a great career, and um, you should listen to that that latest um, podcast with R- Ryan Rosillo and Dilfer talking about the difference, the generational differences in the quarterbacks and the things that they had to do and the throws that they couldn't couldn't make because they had these head hunting safeties in the middle. Uh, like John Lynch and uh, Steve Atwater, they couldn't like unless it was wide open. They couldn't throw anything over the middle. Everything was outside of the numbers on the side, and right. all these different things that they had to do and the those punishment guys could that come they in took and, and make hits yeah. on defenseless receivers. And right, it wasn't a penalty. Back right, then. so there was a lot of differences, and I you know I we have to think about you know me and you have to think about like how can we start comparing some of these these players over you know generationally because of these types of rules rules that we've outlined you know over previous episodes so it'll be interesting all right so our final honorable mention for this episode is the st louis rams specifically the 1999 uh greatest show on turf rams um over the decade they had a dynasty score of 18 they were under 500 at 39 and 49 for the decade they made the playoff one time uh they won the conference championship one time and they won one super bowl in 1999 so um they called it the greatest show on turf Um, they played in uh, st louis uh, dome that had a turf field Um, they were uh, officially statistically the second greatest offense of all time second only to 2013 denver broncos which our seattle seahawks beat in the super bowl Um, they had uh, over 400 yards passing per game which was first in the league um, I'm sorry, over 400 yards per game, which was first in the league. Um, they had uh, 272 passing yards per game, also first in the league, 128 rushing, that was fifth, and 32.9 points per game, that was first. Marshall Falk uh, joined the 1,000-1,000 club. He uh, rushed for over 1,300 yards and um, had a receiving of over just over 1,000, 1,048 yards. The no-name quarterback, uh, Kurt Warner, who has a new movie coming out about his life, uh, went from the Arena League to bagging groceries to winning the Super Bowl and eventually the Hall of Fame. So this kind of kicked off that Hall of Fame career. 
Um, this offense was the only one um, of the uh, top 10 offenses in history to actually hoist a Lombardi trophy. So that's pretty, pretty cool. Puts a, puts a new, new meaning to uh, defense wins championships. Right. And then Dick Vermeil, who, I mean, I don't know him enough personally. He finally gets his, his first Super Bowl. Um, He's he, a crier, man. he seemed like a nice guy and I appreciate that he kind of wears his emotion on his sleeve. Yeah. And I know he's come up, he, like he talked about like, coming a long way from his early days of coaching um, to um, when he won that championship. Um, he became the Eagles head coach in 1976. Um, he's in, uh, he was played by that Greg Kinnear in that movie Invincible. If you have the Disney now, Disney plus go check it out. It's awesome. Um, I liked it anyway, it kind of the story of um, uh, Papali, the guy who, who uh, starts, he goes to like a, open open tryout open tryout team, yeah. and, and makes the team it's a really good story That's takes the eagles to their first super bowl in 1980 they lose to the raiders leaves the leaves the eagles in 82 returns to the the nfl as a head coach for the rams in 1997 and uh he gives one of the best tear-filled post-game interviews i've ever seen so yeah you know in, in some Vermeil. of the previous uh in the i guess the 70s and um, 80s episodes that we've done I did you know just like digging back through YouTube videos and stuff trying to get ready Dick Vermeil I was because I you know I I saw the you know when he was the coach of the Rams he, you know he did the uh, very emotional tear-filled uh, post-game interview I was like oh man that, that's nice to see and then like going back I'm like I wonder if he was always like that and then I saw probably like 10 clips of him crying about one thing or another uh in the 70s and 80s so uh I like it man you gotta you gotta wear your emotions on your sleeve sometimes you do so that's what we try to do here yep I don't know if we're accomplishing that but <laughs> we're, we're trying to be our best dick version of Dick Vermeil. absolutely all right so that wraps it up there are honorable mentions and yep, all so the information Cowboys, congratulations yeah uh, and yeah, we will see you guys next week. Please like, listen, rate, review, share, all that good stuff. Uh, we really appreciate it. It helps us with the algorithms and more people will be able to hear this. How about them cowboys? <laughs>